Back in 2015, uh, my wife Erin and I got married. Uh, September 19th was the day. I didn't need to look at my notes. I did remember that, but it is just for the record. Uh, on the very next day, September 20th, uh, we got into her Volkswagen Passat that was packed to overflowing with our necessities. Some clothes, some instruments, and then a box, a shoebox full of <laughs> it's funny you're talking about security. And we had all of our uh, cash and gift cards that people had given us for our wedding um, in a shoebox. And uh, so that was what we were going to use to buy all of our necessities because we uh, hit the road the day after our wedding and drove a thousand miles away to Durham, North Carolina. Just uh, some clothes, a guitar, and a shoebox full of gift cards and cash. So all at once, everything changed. In hindsight, I realized how emotionally intense that was for us and uh, I wouldn't, and for our family and friends that we ditched. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend it across the board, but I also wouldn't change it for us. It worked out really great. Um, but it was a lot of change and a lot of newness all at once. All at once we turned the page from being two individuals to one married couple, and we had to learn to live together and work as a unit. We moved to a city I'd never actually even been to. I'd only ever uh, just looked at on Google Street View. Uh, thanks to Google, I already knew where the churches and coffee houses I wanted to check out were, so I had my, my bases covered, but I'd never even been there. Neither of us knew anyone who lived in the state. Our friend group started from zero. Our family support system was remained supportive, but was now a thousand miles away. And I, a sensitive boy with Canadian blood who didn't, don't, I don't do great in the heat. I had to adjust to southern summers right as our car's AC went out. Yeah, thanks. She started a new job. I had to go job hunting. Everything was, was new. And many times in life we, we experience some version of this. We turn the page and start new chapters. Um, this particular experience was less like starting a new chapter and more like starting a, a, a brand new book. Life, though, is, is rarely so all or nothing. I, I don't think I'll, I can't imagine an experience that I'll ever have that again. Such a black and white, across the board, all at once, everything changes. Marriage, family, where we lived, our friends, everything was, was starting over. Most often, where we spend most of our lives, life is much more messy. One area of our life feels stable, while another grows stale and in need of change. Maybe marriage is solid, but work is really rough, or the other way around. You put out one fire, and then another one starts. One dream dies or comes true, another one starts to boil up. I'm not breaking any news here, but life is constant motion, constant change, and a messy blend of overlapping storylines. And so today I want to talk about a way we can think about approaching new chapters in our lives whether they're new chapters that we choose or the ones that kind of just seem to choose us, whether that's at work or at home, our health, our friend group, the big dream we've always had, the baggage we want to finally deal with, whatever it is for you, where you are today, um, we're still here early on in a new year, kind of end of resolution season. How are those New Year's resolutions going? Right, it's February, middle of February, so we've all forgotten about those, right? So we'll revisit that today, maybe. Something we all share in common wherever we find ourselves is that probably in some area of our lives, it's time to turn over a new leaf. This phrase, turning over a new leaf, really means to turn a new page. Apparently, back in the 16th century, pages were called leaves. 
apparently. As someone who likes to be creative myself, and the blank page is both one of my favorite things, and it's also one of my biggest sources of anxiety. And even if you don't routine, routinely make like, artistic things that you plan to share with others, you've known that feeling of sitting down to write a school paper, or a cover letter for a new job, or I don't know, maybe a talk you're going to give on February 11th that you put off just a little too long to prepare for. The blank page is exciting, but it's also full of promise. It's terrifying and it's overwhelming. The feeling of looking ahead to whatever new thing looms ahead of us uh, can bring with it a, this mix of excitement and also dread. And so today I want to hope, I hope to help us feel more equipped um, to take on whatever new blank pages, new leaves we're turning over in our lives. So we're going to start in a, a famous passage of scripture from a not-so-famous book. It's a really beautiful, hope-filled passage right in the middle of this really dark, depressing, angry bummer of a book. It's a small five-chapter book tucked away in the Old Testament. Um, it's called Lamentations. Now, a lament, where we get the word lamentations, is a, quote, passionate expression of grief or sorrow. And as we'll look at in a minute, this book is full of exactly that. But right in the middle of this short little book, there are these few hopeful verses that will likely sound even a little familiar to you, even if you haven't really been around church much. So we're going to start with this familiar passage. So this is um, chapter 3, starting at verse 21. Yet I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the loving devotion of the Lord, we are not consumed, for his mercies never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And the church people say, Amen. right, right. You might recognize this as the verse that inspired the famous hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. You can see the same lyrics in there. It's a passage that's inspired a lot of songs. It's provided a lot of hope, and rightfully so. Because I think we believe these words, that's why we're here. The rest of the book, though, would never get played on Caleb in a million years. A lot of this book would not even be allowed on network TV. It's the kind of explicit content you could only see on, like, HBO. Most of this book is brutal and dark and violent. But it's brutal and dark and violent because that's exactly what the writer or writers of this book was experiencing. This book shows up in our Bibles as five chapters, but its structure is actually five separate poems. Uh, these poems fall into a, a genre called a city lament. Uh, the ancient people would have when their cities were destroyed. In this case, for the Jewish people, these poems are lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar. Which, quick side note, I, I love VeggieTales. Any VeggieTales fans out there? The only downside is that, to this day, certain biblical characters still look like talking vegetables in my imagination. <laughs> so I have to remind myself um, that King Nebuchadnezzar was a real, well-verified historical figure and not a giant cucumber with a face, <laughs> which is still how I picture him. So the very real non-cucumber Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire, after years of oppression and laying siege to Jerusalem, has finally, finally captured and destroyed the city and the temple and everything that the Jewish people held to be important and sacred. Their way of life, their way of worshiping, everything was destroyed. Everything they knew to be true of the world had been turned upside down. And now, to bring it to us, has life ever felt a little bit like that? After a death, 
after a divorce or a breakup, after a job loss, a miscarriage, a relapse. Suddenly, the story about an ancient people whose city was destroyed starts to feel a little closer to home. So this book, uh, as well as others like Ecclesiastes, many of the Psalms, and then littered through all out the rest of the Scripture, including in the Gospels and the example Jesus sets for us. Lament is intended to be a part of a healthy spiritual diet. There really is nothing wrong with positive and encouraging to pick on Caleb's slogan. But it's an unhealthy imbalance when we have a, a Christian subculture that only makes room for positive, feel-good, happy church faces. Lament, when we look at scripture, is clearly meant to be part of a healthy spiritual diet. Because lament is not a word we really use much in our day-to-day life, um, I want to give us a phrase to use for the rest of the day, and hopefully this will stick with you going forward too as you think about this. So lament, in short, is honesty. But even more than that, lament is what I'm calling today scary honesty with God. An honesty that's so honest, it's scary. As we turn to start talking about new beginnings, turning over a new leaf, starting a new chapter, uh, this phrase, scary honesty, is something I've identified as a bit of a secret ingredient to our new, our new beginnings. So for the rest of our time here, we're going to talk about a few different ways that this can, this can play out. This beautiful passage that we get in uh, Lamentations 3 that has inspired songwriters and poets Jews and Christians for literally thousands of years. This beautiful, great is thy faithfulness passage is sandwiched in between a whole bunch of brutal honesty. So I want to uh, cherry pick. I'm not going to put these on the screen. There might be children in the room, so I can't put this on the screen. Here's a few lines from uh, just the first 20 verses. So I'm going to go, we started reading in in 21. These are just from the first 20 verses of this one chapter out of five. This is the same chapter where we get this optimistic passage about God's new mercies every day and great faithfulness. Here are a few things that the poet says about God. God has driven me away and made me walk in darkness instead of light. Sounds like the opposite of a lot of our songs and our psalms that we like to quote. God has worn away my flesh and skin and has scattered my bones. It's getting a little grotesque. Even when I cry out for help... God shuts out my prayer. He has forced me off the path and tore me to pieces. He has pierced my kidneys with arrows. Good Lord, that will not make it to Caleb, right? My Savior, he has pierced my kidneys. That is gruesome, dark, violent language. One more. uh, The poet says, God has ground my teeth with gravel and trampled me in the dust. All of that, this is in your Bibles, I'm not, all of that brutal imagery is in just 16 verses of one of five long poems. This book is a bummer. And while some of that language is is over the top and poetic, it's meant to be, uh, these last few verses that lead up to Great is Thy Faithfulness, these kind of rang more true to me. Um, So let's start reading again, but in the same chapter, we're going to end up in the same place, but this time we're going to start just a few verses back. This time starting in verse 17. So it says, My soul has been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, My strength has perished along with the hope of the Lord. 
Remember my affliction and wondering, the wormwood and the gall. Surely my soul remembers and is humbled within me. Yet I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the loving devotion of the Lord, we are not consumed, for his mercies never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. My soul has been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what it is to prosper. These are the words in verse 17. Or we might say today, I've forgotten how it even feels to be happy, to be content, to be unanxious. It is in this context that we get the turnaround in verse 21. Yet I still have hope. So here's what I want to try to encourage us to try today. Could we be willing to not simply skip to the feel-good verse? Could we do what is actually the biblical thing to do and actually be scary honest with God? When Jesus is on the cross, he quotes this first line of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a model of scary honesty. God, where did you go? Why did you leave me here? Are you even real? That psalm ends beautifully about redemption and, and God showing up psalm that Jesus quotes, but the opening line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What marriage is not better after hard, honest conversations? What parent-child relationship, what friendship, what work relationship is not better after a good, hard, honest conversation? Some of us have been unable to move on from a loss we experienced, unable to move on to the next stage, unable to get healthier spiritually, mentally, physically, all of the above, because we haven't been willing or able or in our defense, maybe we didn't even know this was allowed, we haven't gotten honest with God. We've been mad at God about the divorce for years and years, but we never dared pray and tell God that. We've been mad at God about the childhood we didn't have because of our parents' inability to care for us well, but we feel like, you know, we sing these songs on Sunday about hope and God's goodness, and we haven't even really realize we're, we've got all this untapped bitterness towards God that we're, we're holding in about our story. This progression that we see in the book of Lamentations from scary honesty to God, with God to turning it around to a hopeful place, it's not intended to be a step-by-step guide, but I do think there's something to the order. It's pretty basic, like, relational psychology You think about when there's a tension in your relationship, right? You just pick a relationship. Maybe all your relationships are tense. I hope not. But pick one and think about it at work, at home. Once you finally have that conversation with your spouse, your boss, your parent, your kid, your friend, and you get some things off your chest, you start to feel like you've said your piece and maybe hopefully the other person has heard you. And from there, you can start to see more clearly and maybe even start to admit some of the areas you've been the one in the wrong. In the days and weeks and years, maybe that, Before that conversation, you walk around carrying that weight, all the unsaid, unprocessed emotion that we carry with us. Once we get honest, though, things start moving forward. You could say a new leaf gets turned over. So today, I want to give us a really practical challenge. I want as many of you that are willing to do this. I want us to write our own laments. And maybe this is just something that you think about in the coming days and weeks, and just maybe conjure the bravery to to pray to God. That's a good start. For extra credit, though, I'd love for a bunch of us to actually write it out. I can ask you to do this kind of scary thing, because I did it. I wrote my own lament, kind of journal style. 
Here are a couple thoughts on that to start. First, don't jump to chapter 3 too quickly. So here's what I mean, right? I should, I should say the middle of chapter 3 too quickly. Following this example that we see in, in this uh, Old Testament uh, book, don't start with, God, I'm kind of disappointed, but I know you're good. That's what you have to do to get a song played on Christian radio, to pick on them again. I'm sorry. Um, it has to, you can be honest for like half of a sentence, but then it has to be comma, but I know you're good. Don't jump too quickly to that. Follow this example that's laid out for us throughout the scriptures and be really honest and be as dark as you need to. Get mad at God, question God's very existence, whatever you need to do. And in my experience, the longer that you can stay in that place of honesty, that's maybe quite terrifying to be in, the longer you can stay in that place, the more real it feels when you do get to the place of hope and trust and believing in the goodness of God. Second, after you've written out or just thought about a lament, take time to notice what you can learn about yourself. So in my case, one thing I noticed is I saw my own entitlement. I saw how I was frustrated God wasn't giving me things that were never promised to me in the first place. If God offers me peace, um, yes, but I was never promised enough money in my bank account to give me that peace, right? God offers me a meaningful life, sure, but I was never promised a successful life by any of culture's standards. So as I wrote out frustrations, I saw my own entitlement in there. I learned other things about myself here, too. But this isn't really meant to be about what I learned. It's, it's more an encouragement for you to do the same exercise. If you've been stuck and unable to move beyond whatever it is that's holding you back, you want so badly to start a new chapter, maybe a whole new book, but you've stopped hoping that it's even possible, start there. Tell God you've kind of lost hope. Ask God where he went. Vent it all out. Get mad. Maybe some dark uh, poetry about piercing your kidneys because that's the biblical thing to do. And here's what I believe. After you get scary honest with God, just like our human relationships always get better with honesty, your relationship with God will grow. Maybe not right away, but every relationship benefits from honesty. And here's what else. Those beautiful, um, hopeful verses starting in chapter 321. Once you've been brutally honest for two and a half chapters, then when you read those verses or sing songs in church or hear your Christian friends talk about their hope and their trust, after you've been scary honest with God, I believe that all this talk about hope and God's goodness starts to ring more true on the other side of this. So get scary honest with God. Write him an angry letter because it's the biblical thing to do. Next, scary honesty with God is, is one practice that can jumpstart us, but a sibling practice to this I want to talk about is scary honesty with ourselves. There's a line in what is uh, probably Jesus' most famous parable, the prodigal son story. There's this line that I... I really love, and there's so many great lines in this story. It's so, the story is so dense with wisdom and beautiful imagery. But there's a, a small line I want to point out today. We're at the halfway point in the story. The son has already told his father that he wishes the father would hurry up and die already so he could have the inheritance, to which the father surprisingly replies by giving him his inheritance early. If you know the story, you know the son takes the money and squanders it in, quote, wild living. Along with the wild living, like a lot of those 
so-called good times, there's the morning after on the other side of it. And the son finds himself working with pigs, which is uh, scandalous in itself for a Jewish person. And he's so hungry and broke at this point. He's so hungry, he says, the, the story says he longs to fill his stomach with what the pigs were eating. You ever go to a farm or the Blue Hill Fair and look at the animals and think, I'm so hungry, I wish I could have their slop. Sometimes I admit I might think about eating the pigs themselves, but that's a different problem. I've never been this level of hungry, and most of us haven't, I can't imagine. I'd be surprised here if anyone's woken up in a literal pig pen, show of hands. But maybe it's waking up beside someone and realizing the relationship never should have happened. Maybe it's sobering up after another time giving in to the addiction. It's calming down and and living with the aftermath of another angry outburst that hurt relationships that you care about. Regret and desperation and reaching the end of our rope. We've probably never woken up in a pig pen, but we've all felt some version of that feeling. So we find this uh, famous story in uh, the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, and verse 17, we get this line. This is halfway through the story. But when he came to himself, the son, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, and I perish here with hunger? This line, when he came to himself. So some translations will translate this as um, he came to his senses. Uh, But I really like this particular translation. And this is actually, if you dig in just a little bit, you'll see that this is the literal, what the Greek is saying. The Greek word there is just that he came to the masculine pronoun of himself. He came to himself. Sometimes what we need to start the process of beginning a new chapter, starting over, moving on, healing. Sometimes we need to come back to ourselves. Or in the language I'm using, we need scary honesty with ourselves. The scary part of this honesty in this story, you can see how the son starts mentally preparing to come home. Verse 18, I will get up and I will go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He's rehearsing what he's going to say. This moment of honesty with himself brings with it this fear. Fear of what will happen when he does what he senses he needs to do. Going back to limitations for a moment. uh, We've talked about how the new mercies, great is thy faithfulness passage, comes right in the middle of the book. So far, we've only talked about what comes before it. So something interesting happens, I think, on the other side of the passage, too. Things get kind of bleak again. The hope only lasts for a bit. But one thing is different now in the, in the, in the structure of the poem and how the writer is approaching it. The writer of the book starts to take more responsibility. So this is verse 40 of the same chapter, a few verses after Great is Thy Faithfulness. It says, uh, let us examine and test our ways and turn back to the Lord. Let us lift up our hands to God in heaven. We have sinned and rebelled. You have not forgiven. So let us examine and test our ways and turn back to the Lord. The one word description of this might be repentance. And this language of turn back to God evokes for me this imagery from the prodigal son story. The son wakes up desperate, full of regret, scared, but willing to turn back home. And this is probably my favorite image of repentance. The word repentance has lots of baggage. 
because it's not really a word we use outside of religious settings much. Um, it has connotations of fire and brimstone, angry preachers, or street preachers with a sandwich board, and repent for the end is near. But my favorite image of repentance is the prodigal son story. He repents when he turns back and heads home. And remember that he heads home full of shame and fear, rehearsing a speech that talks about how bad he's been. The father's response, though, the father doesn't shame, does not say, I told you so, does not once mention the wrong done against him or how much it must have hurt to see the son leave. The father actually interrupts the son's rehearsed speech and declares a celebration. So in the prodigal son story, we're back in verse 20 now. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still in the distance, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. The son declared, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's starting his rehearsed speech. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us feast and celebrate. For the son of mine is dead, was dead, and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This story is Jesus' greatest hit, in part because there are so many layers to this story. It's a gift that keeps on getting... Uh, keeps on giving. And we could get together once a week and just read this parable every week and every week and probably not really run out of things to talk about. But for today, even though the son is not the hero of the story by any means, it's that moment in the pig pen I want to kind of focus on today. The reconciliation, the starting over only happens because of that moment in the pig pen, that moment when he comes to himself. That moment of scary honesty with himself kicks off the next chapter of his story. One chapter ended with him starving, covered in mud, far from home, alone, just longing to eat what the pigs are eating. The next chapter starts when he gets scary honest with himself and starts to head back home. He wakes up after wasting his money, ostensibly ruining his life, and says, This isn't working. And I love this powerful question for us today. As you look at your life right now, as you think about your hopes and your dreams for what could be in your next chapter, get scary honest with yourself and ask this question. What isn't working? What isn't working in your work-life balance, in your marriage, in the job you thought would fulfill you, in your social social circle, in your financial habits, in the things you're pursuing because culture or teachers or your parents told you to, what isn't working? And maybe it's clear as day to you. Maybe something jumps out. Maybe it's a clear, clearly destructive way of living, an addiction, a lack of self-control, a group of friends that's really bad for you. But chances are it's probably something just a little out of balance at home, at work, in your own heart. So what's not working? Get scary honest with that question. If we're going to turn over a new leaf, head into something new that God has for us, I think we have to get scary honest with ourselves about where we currently find ourselves. Scary honesty with God, scary honesty with ourselves, and finally, and this one will be a little quick, 
Scary honesty with someone else. Ecclesiastes 4, 9-12. through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if one falls down, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without anyone to help him. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can resist. Moreover, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Proverbs 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. In my experience, probably the biggest factor between whether or not a goal of mine succeeds or fizzles out, whether or not I actually do the big scary thing I feel called to do or I chicken out, oftentimes the biggest factor in my experience has been whether or not I've done the scary act of bringing someone else into the process with me. So years ago, I discovered what is now one of my favorite life hacks, if you want to use that term. And I'm going to share that with you. If you came here today and you don't, want to be, you don't really want to be here, you don't have any interest in spirituality or Jesus or these weird church people, you can still take this one with you. It's free. You're welcome. I learned this from um, the author Donald Miller, who I've learned so much from over the years. He taught me the concept of an inciting incident. An inciting incident is the moment in a story. So a movie, a novel, a story you just like to tell at dinner parties, whatever it is, a story. The inciting incident is the moment that kicks the story off and is the point of no return. It's the door the character walks through that they cannot go back through. This inciting incident is a a phrase that screenwriters and novelists like to use, and, and it's a way that they structure their stories to make sure the story gets thrown into motion. Sometimes the character makes the choice, such as, the moment a character tells the love interest that they see them as more than a friend, right? You can't untell someone you were secretly in love with them the whole time. Can't go back. Other times, that inciting incident happens to the characters. So you think of something like Star Wars, stormtroopers come, and they fry Luke Skywalker's uncle and aunt. There's no going back from there. Luke Skywalker has now been thrown into the story, and the rest is a billion-dollar success. What I learned and have used over and over is that when we stand on the edge of something scary that we want to embark on, use this idea of an inciting incident and write it for ourselves. Write it into our own story. Create our own door that we can't walk back through. And one of my go-to ways to do this is to bring others into my story and, and get scary honest with them. So an example, I started playing guitar in front of people here, around 14 years old. Um, Started playing a couple songs per week up here, just kind of doing the bare minimum, what I could could figure out, and then that just grew and grew. By the time I was 17, I was regularly playing in a a little worship band that traveled around Maine, played at a few different churches and Christian festivals and youth group retreats, that kind of thing. Also, around that time, late high school, I put together a a band with my guitar teacher and some friends, and we... um, Played a couple years of gigs at the Chamber of Commerce's big annual dinner, and then that same band came here and we did fundraising concerts. Some of you were here for that over a decade ago, as crazy as that seems. I'd gotten to the point, even back then in high school, where I I had very little nerves about going on stage and playing guitar. I had the regular maybe performance excitement you'd expect, but the the act of playing guitar in front of other humans didn't really scare me anymore. And that might have just been being an obnoxious teenage boy, I'm not sure, but I think... um, I think I just put in the reps and I felt comfortable with that. But at the same time, I absolutely refused to sing in front of anyone. Not my bandmates, not my family. Occasionally in a band practice, we'd be trying to fill, figure out like a, a vocal part, a melody, 
and they would ask my opinion, and I would just like try to play it like I had lost the ability to talk and could only communicate with my guitar. I was like, I think it's like this, and I turned red. Being scared to sing in front of people, though, that's not really much of a story in and of itself. Most people are. Um, most of you would run out that door before coming up here and singing into a microphone when I'm done. The difference, though, in my story is that I knew I really wanted to do it. I was kind of already secretly writing songs, and I had a desire to continue to write and perform my own songs. I knew that's what I wanted to do. I knew I had some semblance of an ability to do so, but I couldn't bring myself to do it in front of other humans. And it had gone on kind of too long to just start doing it out of the blue, because everyone I did music with knew I didn't sing. They would crack jokes about putting a mic in front of me, and I'd just laugh it off. <laughs> like when you're crush in middle school, it's like, imagine if we were boyfriend and girlfriend, and we went to that dance together. Wouldn't that be weird? And you're just like, ah, yeah, so weird. But <laughs> So for years, I secretly uh, worked on a song. I worked on songwriting and singing at home when no one was around. Um, Finally, and thanks in part to meeting my, my now wife, Erin, and us playing music together and her encouraging me, finally I got to the point where I knew I had to do it and just sing in front of someone. I had to just break the seal, rip off the band-aid and do it, and then I could start my new chapter. Right? So what I did is I created my own inciting incident. I created this own door I couldn't walk back through. So I drafted a text telling my friends and family that I wanted to sing and that I was going to put on a little mini concert right here and just break the seal and do it. I texted around a half dozen friends. Garth, you were here. Um, the rest of my friends left after the concert. <laughs> um, a half dozen friends or so, my girlfriend at the time, Aaron, my family, uh, and I invited them to come into church on a random weeknight. I was going to do a little mini acoustic concert, just rip the bandaid off. I wrote the text. I reread the text. I reread it again. I paced. I like to pace. Read it again. I took a bathroom break. Read it again. Finally, I hit send and invited my friends. And just like that, 20 or so of the people close to, closest to me got invited to come hear me sing. And there was no going back. I was, I was so upfront in this text saying, you know, this is something I've really wanted to do for a long time, that even if I made up some excuse to not do it on this particular Wednesday night or whatever it was, uh, I knew that these friends would push me and they would not let me back out. So I did end up having the concert. A few of you guys were here. I haven't won any Grammys or anything like that, but learning to sing in front of people has provided me some of my very favorite memories and experiences of my entire life. Some really fun and uh, fulfilling memories that would never have happened if I had not taken that leap. And so what allowed me to do that was getting scary honest with someone else, in this case a group of friends, and, and just letting them into my story and creating an inciting incident for myself. I kicked myself into motion and made it harder to quit than to simply just follow through. And so if you want to start something new, make some positive changes, turn over a new leaf, you can use this idea of an inciting incident. Send an email, invite a friend out and just spill the beans. Sign up for the race. You're not nearly in shape to run. Tell your boss what needs to change at work. Fill out the application to go back to school. Just take an action to kick the story into motion. And then make sure you get scary honest with at least one other person. Invite someone else into your story. Ask them to keep you accountable. Invite some collaborators into your life as you, as you write the next chapter. And then just trust that God will use the power of friendship and accountability and the wisdom of other people to propel you into what's next. So scary honesty with God, scary honesty with ourselves, scary honesty with others. 
This is not a guarantee by any means that everything in our lives is going to change for the better in this new year and the years going forward. But I'm confident that taking even one of these practices and really taking concrete action will absolutely help, help each of us, uh, wherever we find ourselves, move, move forward just a little bit. Life is hard and life is scary, but we're also here today because we believe that, as the writer of Lamentation says, God is faithful, and God is a God who is always doing new things. God's mercies are new every day. And that is the hope we carry with us as we look forward and start to turn over a new leaf. In closing, let's, let's pray together. God, thank you that you are a God of new beginnings that every day we have the chance to start fresh. We're thankful that you're always calling us forward. God, thank you that when we crawl back to you, regretful, ashamed, you welcome us with open arms and throw a party. Thank you that, that you're not too sensitive that we can't be scary honest with you. Help us to say to you what we're really thinking. Give us honesty in our prayers, even if it's angry or disappointed or scared. Give us the bravery to be honest with you wherever we find ourselves and the bravery to be honest with ourselves. Give us clarity about what you have in store for us in this next chapter of our lives. Give us the courage to take action. Give us friends who will hold us accountable. Give us the strength to follow through when it's scary. Got to look around the room and I'm excited about all the new stories that are about to be written, about to begin. We want to be used by you to play a role in writing the story you are writing in the world. So use us, be with us, give us the peace and strength to be honest with you and ourselves and others. Thank you for all you're doing in our lives and in this church community. In your name we pray, amen.